you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. I think uh, I think, I, I think it's been a while since we. I've said uh, I think we're blessed. So maybe Darnell will let me get away with that one this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we, got, we have, we have a, a guest, as you can see in the, um, on the title and the show notes. Uh, first, we want to thank uh, one of our listeners for um, requesting the show. Yeah, Sands. yeah, John John Dansby. Uh, we we mentioned a couple of weeks ago with uh, some, you know, I think uh, maybe it was a, a couple months ago now with uh, some funky Facebook comment weird stuff go, or notifications and then you know tagging of uh, comments as I don't know what it was. It was very peculiar. But anyways, uh, he also sent me a message, uh, you know, introducing us to to our guest and and his podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Professor. Uh, Dr. Steve McMullen and his podcast, Faithful Economy. Uh, he basically, you know, focused in on a particular disagreement between pastors and economists. Uh, and so we we reached out to to Steve to see if he would join us. And and so we're grateful. And it's great. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank thanks you. for thanks for coming. Uh, for, for the listeners, uh, so uh, Professor Steve McMullen is an associate professor of economics at Hope College executive editor for his um for the journal faith and economics host of the host of the podcast faithful economy and fellow at the oxford center for animal ethics and senior fellow at uh, seneca media his research interests include inequality consumerism education policy animal and environmental ethics and theology did i miss miss anything steve you know, my research interests change uh, almost by the month, but that list is still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's still pretty good because that covers a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so, okay, for the listeners, can you give us uh, some, some background on, um, on yourself just as a person? Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm, I'm working in Michigan now, um, obviously. Um, my background is in, professionally is as an economist. Um, that's where all my education is, and it's only as a uh, it's only as a scholar after I became a professor that I started really digging into theology and philosophy. Really? And yeah, it was. I mean, and it, partly it's because in graduate school you're all dialed in and focused on something really narrow. Um, but then when you become uh, a teacher and you're talking to colleagues at a liberal arts college and you're talking to students, uh, you're you're invited to ask bigger questions. And I started reading theology, and you have more time also to read so, uh, than in grad school. So I started reading and, and thinking about reform theology in particular, because I was working at Calvin College uh, over in Grand Rapids, where that's mm-hmm. just something that all the, all the faculty are expected to do. And I kind of got hooked. And, um, and, then, uh, and then I got into animal ethics and in environmental um, ethics as well. And that, that sort of got me into philosophical moral moral philosophy as well. And, um, and t- today, it's fair to say that the technical economics research that I was doing a decade ago is way on the back burner. And just about all the stuff that I'm doing is, is, is kind of at the intersection of, uh, of economics, theology, 
moral philosophy. Uh, and there's just so much right material there that um, I probably spend the rest of my career on this, but it's hard to make promises. Okay. Okay. No, that, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. So just your, uh, your show and, and, your, and what you teach all kind of overlap with what Joel and I do on the show. Uh, totally. So it was, yeah, because we um, we use uh, theology and economics to analyze events that impact Canadians, <clears throat> and so you know we definitely see there is um, overlap between the two. So based on uh, the question that, that our guest was kind of asking, what would be your answer to what happens when um, um, pastors and economists disagree? <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of conversations that are usually kind of in the background. Um, and so we, we could, I could give some examples, but, but like one of the, one of the issues in having a, a conversation between an economist and a pastor or a theologian is that there's usually a different, there's a different fundamental question when two folks will approach the same topic. So if you talk to an econ public policy person and they're thinking about um, food stamps, for example, um, I, I actually don't know much about the welfare state in Canada and the names of programs, but food stamps is, you know, basic food support, um, in, in the U S uh, and, um, and so if you have a, a theologian thinking about food stamps, they're probably going to be asking a question, something like this, something like, uh, what is the way in which we can organize society to best meet our obligation to the poor? Um, and it is probably assumed that there's some obligation that Christians have to the poor. And then, you know, the question is, you know, what does it entail for an economist that that question will be there, but there'll be a whole different set of concerns running through their head usually. Uh, and that'll be something like what kind of behaviors are encouraged and discouraged by the structure of the program? Um, what kind of. Um, they, they might be thinking about counterfactuals, like what kind of access to food would people have with the program and without the program? Um, does the program have any impact on employment? Does it, does it influence people to make dis different career decisions, different um, neighborhood living decisions, all these other kinds of things? And so if right from the start, the pastor, theologian, the economist will be clued into a different set of questions, and then that will result in possibly without some maybe a long conversation, some immediate disagreement that's, that feels weird to both parties. Mm. That, does, that, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe I'm, uh, um, a maybe this isn't totally right, but, but I was wondering, you know, is there an aspect of sort of they're in their own compartment, um, you know, compartmentalization a little bit, like, you know, um, the pastors thinking in one box, the, the, econ policy person is in another um and so to some extent they're if i think about it sort of even as a venn diagram you know they're fail sometimes there's a failure to sort of see where the overlap is in, in terms of you know the disagreement yeah yeah i think that's 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 right there's um the the kind of conversation that economists are used to having is mm -hmm. one about how to effectively meet a particular goal. The conversation that theologians and pastors are used to having is, what should our goals be? Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're in one box or the other, 
it is actually it actually takes more work than we realize sometimes to take a step out and actually do a really good job asking the other question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our specialization, frankly, and our training um, kind of gets in the way sometimes unless you're unless you, you really have you know good listening skills and and you're both able to communicate real clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I was also thinking like sort of as a second dimension to that, like that even the person like I think about the the econ policy person, right? They're also in a context that they're sort of um forced to think incrementally. Mm-hmm. Right? As opposed to you know, um asking the really big question of is a is the food stamp program as, as a whole an effective means Right. So if I step into the because the way I've and, and this might sort of align with I don't know if you still do this, but early on in your podcast, it seemed like you asked the same question of like, what is and I, I'm going to brutalize the question because I don't quite remember how you said it, but something like you would ask your guests, how do you see the, you know, Christianity and, and economics, you know, coming yeah. together? Um, and, and I've and I won't say that this is a perfect quote, but um, I think I've usually said the Bible and, and Christianity gives us. Um, a prescription a lot of what we should do but economics is the tools we use to figure out what's the efficient way to actually achieve that yeah and that's you know that's a that's a fine answer and um and in a good sense of probably the way economists often think about what we're doing because you're right economists are often thinking thinking on the margin we're going to ask the our first question about food stamp program is not going to be sort of a broad one <laughs> uh, it's going to be pretty narrow it's like on what margin could we change policy or law or implementation to make this program slightly better? Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's kind of the, that's the first easiest question for an economist to ask. Right. Mm-hmm. And the first easiest question for a theologian to ask is something like, what does the kingdom of God look like? Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's the conversation that theologians are trained to have. We need both of them desperately, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a different it's a different ball game. Well, and see what I, the reason I sort of, you know, have been sort of narrowing in a little bit on, you know, and I sort of talked about scaling up is, is I think about, you know, the merging those two conversations to ask sort of the mutual question of, okay, what, what are we called to do? And let's say on a community level from a, you know, church perspective, and then using the economist perspective to, to speak about how do we do that efficiently? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I bring that up is, Asking that sort of aggregate gets us to say, okay, where should we be going? So if I go back to the food stamp example, if the where we should be going is, is sort of creating an environment that will actually be more productive and we ignore sort of where we are, we can now sort of maybe incre- tr- look at the changes incrementally might, might be much different than the incremental change of, okay, how do I make the current system you know, more efficient? Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that, that's right. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be different margins that you can think to work on. And one would be the margin of like the, the way the programs and policies shape community life, right. And the way community life is going to shape interaction with the policy. And then there's the, how do we run the program better? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. From, from, from kind of the eyes of the technocrat or the, the bureaucrat. Yeah. yeah uh, and is, I that, think, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. And I think, the 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 question right before how do we run the program better i think sometimes the economist without the conversation with the you know theologian might 
fail to go, wait, we might want to run a program slightly better right now, but leave the ability to fundamentally make changes so that it aligns. That might be true. Um, particularly in the public policy world, there is a there's a really strong constraint imposed. If, you, if you're working in like a think tank or something and you're writing policy reports, there's a really strong constraint imposed by the political process. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure to produce ideas that will be useful to someone as a policymaker. Um, you know, and maybe it's in a political, particular political party or whatnot. But that means what's politically possible <laughs> or at least politically interesting to leaders does impose a pretty strong constraint on what kinds of things people propose. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I've been working with uh, an organization called the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. to think through what a, a paid family leave policy would look like in the U.S. It's, uh, it's a topic of some debate in the U.S. right now in, mm-hmm. in Congress. And, and it's really interesting to first ask the question, what kind of policy is ideal? And then second, ask the question, Okay, what should what would we propose that might have a chance of of actually influencing what is going to happen in the political realm? And those um, those are different. And you know, frankly, the policy world is 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 shaped pretty heavily by by that constraint. Yeah, and so I think this is a great example where where I would think about the, the 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 Christian sort of perspective, and because I I think about the big question is that we're sort of I'll say, let's say secular government has a very different answer to the question I'm going to think about, which is as a you know, Christian family, what is the most, what type of environment do I want to create such that my family will have the uh, most productive or efficient means of chi- young child rearing? Mm. And, and I, the reason I say that is we know from a secular taxation corporate perspective, they want let's say women to go back to the workforce as quickly as possible. Um, but from a child rearing perspective, is that the best solution? And, and not to say that every family needs to follow the same scenario, but if we start to over incentivize to one side, like, like, so for in Canada, we have a very um, liberal uh, or progressive, you know, we have essentially a year's almost a, uh, um, we, like essentially employment insurance given to young yeah. mothers. And now we've taken the same dollars and said, oh, instead of a year, you can extend the same dollars and put it over a year and a half. Hmm. But what that has done is that, you know, um, most people will have one kid. As soon as the EI runs out or employment insurance runs out, they go back to work just long enough to get another <laughs> program. And so the question is, does, is that actually productive for child rearing and development of your your children that that I would argue a secular you know government isn't even going to ask because more tax dollars means oh we can help people more you know you know that that's that's really interesting and partly because my my head's kind of in this space about about family leave policy but that's that's a really interesting question and it really is hard to know what we're aiming for sometimes because you have you have different good things in mind. So on the one hand, you do want mothers. We want to ha- we want to have a community and an economy and a labor market in which a mother finds, or it, it's actually possible for a mother or a father to to focus on their child when they're first born. That's a mm. that's a period um, you guys know of intensive um, parenting. 
Yes, and I, I'm living in it, and people refer to it as the survival years. It, it is, you know, it's <laughs> I, I there is there there are blank spots in my memory where I don't think I was sleeping enough to form permanent memories, um, because because it's intense. Um, and but that's also that's also a wonderful period. And so you you what you don't want is on one extreme. You don't want to create a world in which the demands of the labor market are such that the family is is just totally crowded out, right? Mm-hmm. So to think, uh, if you all forgive me, to think in, in Kuyperian terms, because I'm from the um, from, yeah. from the Dutch Reformed <laughs> tradition. Yeah, um, no, we talk about that a lot. <laughs> you, you guys are, yeah, yeah. All right, so the the idea would be that it be it's possible, and it's a it's a caution in in Kuyper's thinking that you don't want the market to to overpower the family, mm-hmm. right? And this would be one danger is if if our ability to be families was totally crowded out by the demands of uh, by the demands of work, that would be a that would be a bad thing. On the other hand, like what you describe in which in which the the parent going back to work for a few months is 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 just a pretext to sort of to qualify for another year or year and a half of benefits. That's um, that's a sense in which you know the government policy has has created this weird perverse effect for the labor market, where the person probably isn't engaged in their job in a in a, in a way that has great integrity either. And then you know and then we can just make questions you know value judgments about about how much, how much we value the goal of having people productive in the labor force, how much we value various amounts of time at home, um, and of course, government, government funding. And I honestly don't know how to balance all those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a legitimately difficult thing. And you, know, you, see, you see bad outcomes kind of on both sides, at least, at least in, in, my, in my view. Yeah, and I think um, you know, saying that sort of aligns with, with sort of, the the at least the more free market side of of the criticisms towards central planning because exactly what you just said not one person can know and and you know if i would speculate that um every family is going to be a little bit different and you know um there are already incentives to some extent to go back to the workforce and and you know for the family that has let's say uh is not as well off Maybe the the solution would have been to go back to work for for four years before having another mm-hmm. child, whereas the family who's more well off doesn't go back to work at all, and so neither one of those outcomes occur because they both have a an additional you know government or intervention that changes the incentive structure. Um, now I'm sure people could come up with a scenario where the incentive structure works out to be a benefit. And, and works out positively for the family that was already planning to have two kids two years apart and go back to work, right? Now, now they end up better off. Um, and so, I, again, I just thought, you know, the way you sort of said, how could we know is, is the, to me, the, the fundamental aspect to why central planning in general always has its limitations because no one person can know all of the necessary factors. And we sort of get back to the Adam Smith concept of of the invisible hand sort of shaping things you know i i think that's um i think that's probably right i will um i'll caution that it's there's there's good and bad ways to pursue the same goals and with the government so particularly um your use of the term central planning here evokes the the real tragedy of um 
of centrally planned economies uh, like North Korea, Cuba in our day, but of course the, the Soviet Union and, and various periods of time in various industries in China, where the government was actually making all of the decisions for people mm-hmm. and for industries and what's going to be produced and how it's going to be produced and who it's going to be delivered to and what's it going to cost, uh, which, was, which was economically a real disaster. Um, and it cost, um, it cost human lives, countless human lives in, in the end, the kind of tyranny that it required. So that, that aside, um, there's kind of gradation then, but, it, um, but there's a real difference between, between the government um, really um, making choices for people, like this is the path you're going to take, and this is how much time you're going to spend on the work, and this is how much time you're going to spend the family. Um, and, and I have far less concern about cases in which the government can craft a policy that's just really flexible, but does offer sort of some some kind of flexible support. So I don't have trouble with the government offering um, flexible and, and sort of open-ended kinds of benefits. So a child tax credit, for instance, would be maybe the, the most open-ended kind of benefit you could give if you wanted to support families' ability to support themselves when they have a newborn. And maybe the most restrictive, where the government is making the most choices for you, would be one in which the government says, you can only have a child during these years and you have to take this amount of time off if you want any benefit and it requires that you leave your employment for exactly this amount of time or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say is we should pay attention to the margins in which the government can be, can be more or less sort of bureaucratically intrusive. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree we should, we should try to lean toward governments being, making fewer decisions for people. But that doesn't necessarily rule out some government support, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the then the question becomes, um, you know, for any given support, um, the the question that I think, unfortunately, sort of gets left out of the public discourse, whether it's in the policy background is a separate question, uh, which yeah. would be a little bit more your area, but in the public discourse. It's all about intended consequences, and the unintended consequences are sort of ignored. Um, you know, from a selling of your policy, and 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 the reason I bring that up is that I I've been very um, disillusioned, maybe is the right word, with the the you know the way politicians fail to go. Okay, here's how we're going to judge the effectiveness of the program so that we can reevaluate it after we've implemented it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not the way politics works. <laughs> exactly. Um and, and so but but if if we're trying if the things that we're trying to achieve are actually the goal, then then that's what we should be doing. Yeah, and I um and I I agree. And this is where this is where I think economists have something real to add to the conversation is a a really strong emphasis, focus on all of the different kinds of ways in which people's behavior will be shaped by various by policies. And, um, and, and, and if you dig into the economics literature on, you know, various government social programs, for instance, it's just full of really good detailed studies that show, right, here's the counterfactual. If we, if we had the program different, this is the kind of outcome we'd get because people would behave differently and then we'd get this. And if we, and with the government program, these people's behavior change differently, we get these kinds of results. Now, these studies are hard to do. They take a long time. They're, they're, it takes a long time for the studies to sort of build up and for them to impact policy. And the timeline we're talking about is decades here. 
Mm-hmm. So it's decades of research, uh, you know, and then another decade for the political realm to, to catch up. But ideally, I, I do think this is a place where economists can really add something. I would note, though, that there is uh, there's a tendency in, in, among economists to focus on the unintended consequences, in part because they're so easily ignored in the political process. <laughs> and they're, they're also so easy to ignore just for the layperson, mm-hmm. right? Because the layperson thinking, is food stamps a good idea? They'll have, or you know, is paid leave a good idea? They'll have a, they'll have a few high priority kind of intuitions. One might be just the question of, you know, how much do people need the benefit? How much help is it going to give them? And there might be an intuition about whether or not it's okay for somebody to receive aid from the government. Some people will think that's just fine, and others will will have um, will, will not think that's a great that's a great thing that we should avoid it. You know, the economist is asking a whole bunch of other questions, right? Like, how is this going to impact the person's incentives to go to work uh, or stay home or these kinds of things? Now, here's the problem, though: economists will focus so much on those on those behavioral responses, and sometimes we forget to ask the first question about about justice. Um, what does a just world look like? What is our primary goal here? The primary goal might be like the number of children that are going hungry. And, and so this is, this is where, you know, talking with theologians is, is really helpful because economists will focus so much on the trade-offs that we'll forget until we start talking to a theologian. A theologian will say, you know what, I, I actually think it's worth all those costs to make sure children don't go hungry. Mm-hmm. And, and the economist will say, wait a second, you're not thinking about the trade-offs. And the theologian replies, no, I don't care about the trade-offs. I actually just think the first priority is children shouldn't go hungry. And you realize, again, we're asking very different questions, and we need both of those people, right? Uh, because we need both the clear-eyed moral priorities, and then we need the economist to say, okay, all right, fine. We don't want children to go hungry. You're right. I agree with that upon even a small amount of reflection. Now let's talk about how to bring that world about in the best way, right? And then the conversation begins, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you, need both the, you need both the moral priority to be made clear mm-hmm. and the relative importance of different priorities. And then you need you know, the real detailed focus on what's going to happen when we put these programs in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I love doing kind of the theology, the philosophy, and the economics all together is because these conversations, I think, are really fruitful. And sometimes there's some real value added. Um, yep. and, and I feel like that's where you guys are operating too, is right. Is, is living in this kind of space where we're asking the moral questions, but also, uh, thinking about implementation that feels like your sweet spot from what I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely is. Uh, especially like you just mentioned about, you know, pastors being concerned with justice and, you know, when you look at, you know, right now we're, we're in, in the social justice era and a yeah. lot of pastors are, are, um, forced in a good way, I guess, to really contemplate um, policy and theology. Uh, on November 8th, uh, 2019, we did an episode on Jamar Tisby's book. Um, he, he's the host of um, uh, Pass the Mic. Um, and he was, before he was running the website, um, Reformed in African, Reformed African American Network, which um, is now The Witness. Um, and they're probably a little more um, left leaning. Um, on mm-hmm. on social justice issues, and Jamar Tisby in his book, um, "The Color of Compromise," um, in it, in it, um, he said, um, and I quoted him, and he said, um, "Humbly, he admits that he's uh, no economist, 
And I, yeah. and I was like, oh, and I was like, okay, well, that's where the problem lies. So um, in his book, he argues that the church was uh, reluctant to help blacks in the past. So we must be eager to uh, correct our wrongs in the present. So one of his solutions was uh, reparations. And, he, and he, his proof text was uh, Numbers um, chapter five, verse seven. And, and he also talks about redistribution. And so mm -hmm. uh, in light of that, um, I, I just finished reading the book, um, How Should We Then Live? by Francis Schaeffer. And, and in it, um, which, is, which is a book about um, the rise and decline of Western thought and culture, which is, yeah. which is very helpful to help me think about how did we get here. And so in the book, uh, he talks about um, the Reformed Church being silent on the issue of slavery and capitalism. Um, and, 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 and in it, right, he, he defines capitalism as the abuse of wealth. Technically, from my understanding, capitalism is not a system. It is just um, an economy without government intervention. Now, there is no such thing as a pure capitalist society. So, so there is um, spectrum. balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's spectrum. Yeah, I just, I just want to make that clear yeah. for the listeners, right? Um, just yep. to make sure I'm defining my terms. So, but so today, the Reformed Church is divided on um, how should we then live in a social justice era. So one side says uh, we must, um, to, to correct the, the issues of the past, economically, we should be more progressive. And the other side thinks uh, we should be economically um, more conservative. So my question to you would be, um, what, what, do, what do the scriptures teach about responding um, to capitalism or um, the abuse? I'm not going to say capitalism means the abuse of wealth because it's not. Right. <laughs> but um, just in generally responding to how, what the scriptures teach about dealing with capitalism. You know, that's a, there's a lot in that question. Let's just, let's just acknowledge that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I also just want to add, I also just want to add for clarity for the listeners, um, what this, what this question that I'm asking uh, Steve has to do with central planning um, where the government is, is planning the economy versus the free market where the market is running freely. Um, but yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Um, yeah, that, you know, this is, this is, this is good. And so let's, let's take some pieces of this in turn and, and maybe hash it out. Um, like the reparations question, I think is, I think we can separate it in some sense from the question about the way the church should think about market economies or capitalism, um, which, which would be connected to the, like, how should we think about capitalism? Is it a, is it a, um, is it, does it involve necessarily the abuse of, of wealth and power or something of the sort? Um, and then, um, and then central planning is, is its own thing, which we've, we've talked about a little bit. So let me, let me start by noting that, um, when we're thinking about, about market economies, um, we, and, and about capitalism, you're, you're entirely right. There's a kind of a spectrum. And I like to think about, um, I like to make a leave that tent really big. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know the the more progressive, left leaning, uh, planned economies in in Western Europe compared to the U.S. Um, are are their capitalists, and in the U.S. we're capitalists, and China is slowly uh, inching toward um, market economies in some parts. Although I think there's some been some backward movement there. Um, I like to think of of a capitalist economy as just an economy in which um, which doesn't mean there's there's no government, but 
But anytime you have most of the choices being made in a decentralized fashion, uh, producers and consumers producing and consuming what they want, how they want, by and large, um, then you're you're dealing with a market economy. Um, and then, and then the real question becomes: Is there? There's two. The two big questions arise. One is like: Is there an alternative to that kind of decentralized um, decision making for production and consumption? Um, I don't think there is. So then the question for the church, I mean, which is to say that that central planning of the kind that I described where those decisions are being made by the government has been uh, a historic and catastrophic humanitarian failure um, and just the, mm. uh, the, the place of just, just catastrophic injustice. So if you, put mm. a, if you put that aside and then ask, what's, what should the posture of the church be toward the kind of big tent of different kinds of market economies? Well, then there's lots of room, I think, for disagreement um, that's legitimate and, and, and fair because what we get from Scripture is, uh, is not uh, a clear condemnation of this kind of decentralized decision-making um, or a clear endorsement. What we get is a clear con condemnation of abuse of economic power against those who are poor. And what we get is um, a clear endorsement of using um, what God has given us to promote the good of those around us. But, but those kinds of priorities, they just, they don't answer the question about whether or not we should have, um, you know, a more generous family leave policy from the U.S. government. Uh, it's, um, there, there, you know, there's, in my view, there's just plenty of room for Christians to disagree on that. What I, do think we could say, and you might hear uh, a desire on my part to try to leave open lots of ground for Christians to have conversations and, and not say that the Christian way is, uh, is on the progressive side or the conservative side, because I just don't think that's the kind of judgment we can make responsibly. But what I think we can do is we can say, you know, maybe a figure like Ayn Rand is, is out of bounds, not in, in all of her philosophy and economics, but in, in what seems to be a uh, the idea that we don't have obligations to those around us. I don't think Christians can hold that. I think we have to acknowledge that God says we have, we have economic material obligations to help care for those around us. And then yep. the open question is, right? The open question is, is how should we do it? Um, would, would, I, uh, sorry, Justin, would you agree there's also a question of um, how should we do it also to, to what degree of our community, what qualifies as our community that our obligation applies to? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, and in, in, in philosophical circles, there's big questions about whether or not you have stronger obligations to those who are closer versus farther away. I think, I think everybody has the intuition that you have a special obligation to people in your family. Um, if I, I've, been, I've been given three amazing children who depend on me and, um, and on my wife, and we, it is our, it's our calling and our joy to devote our lives to taking care for them in a particular way. And I think my obligation to my kids is stronger than my obligation to other children in the neighborhood, but the obligation to the other children in the neighborhood is not zero. Um, it's, I, stink, I think it's still pretty high, and probably usually that obligation is higher than I acknowledge. Like mm -hmm. my, mm -hmm. my default weakness will be to ignore those obligations to others. Um, and, you know, more than I should. But yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure what kind of, what you're thinking about uh, in that question, but that's, that would be my first thought. 
Yeah, no, 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 that's good. It's just more so along the lines of, especially, you know, when it, de- when it comes to dealing with racism, um, I find that racism has become a doctrine in the sense of an economic principle. So it's a variable that must oh. be calculated <laughs> mm. in, in your, so, so, what, what, so having these conversations and trying not to misrepresent anybody, the idea is yeah. that, or just even from my observation from doing this show and doing all this studying, that, that racism is an economic principle now. Right. You know, okay, yeah. good, good, good. <laughs> no, you know, so, so here's the thing is in, in, in politics today and in the academy, this is certainly true. There's a lot of attention to race, uh, certainly yeah. to, yeah. to race and gender and, and sexuality. This is, yeah, but also, uh, but also, I just would add also, like, because for the listeners, right, the idea is that economics is, um, in a sense, the science of making choices, the redistribution. Of, or, or the reallocation of um, scarce resources. So in that decision-making, you have the variable of racism. But yeah, go you ahead. Know, and there, are, there are totally areas in, in economics where we have to pay really close attention to questions of race because there's basic questions of justice involved when we start talking about racism, right? And mm-hmm. we want to build a society in which people are able to do what they're called to do um, by God. And, it, and racism will get in the way of that race right um and we've built structures historically that have um that have oppressed and created grave injustice particularly uh for black americans and and again i i I confess i don't know canada's history as well although i sense that in canada you guys are coming to terms um just as we are in the u.s with your history with native people um Mm -hmm. and uh and like that that is a real thing, and it is an economic thing. In that Jim Crow South was uh, was an economic regime that systematically excluded Black Americans from a whole bunch of areas of public life. Right? There's property mm. they couldn't own, businesses they couldn't own, um, banks they couldn't participate in, loans they couldn't get, um, schools they couldn't go to. So you, you know every area, you know public offices they couldn't hold. Every area of public life that is properly economic was also impacted. Um, in a real way. And um, so in that sense, it is, right? Economics, racism is often deeply economic when it's instantiated in structures. Um, and, and so we're coming to terms with that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Tisby, um, so I, I have great respect for his work and, um, and I'd love to go, to go um, hear your guys' conversations about these issues and go back and listen to those. You know, the, the question of how we respond uh, to a history of racism is a hard one. Uh, and it's a, it's a hard one because it's, in some sense, this is where we have to start by asking some basic moral questions and some questions of justice. Um, and then, uh, and in some sense, those have to inform the way we think about the economics. And uh, mm-hmm. even if we agreed on the questions of justice, which we don't, the economics would be hard. Even if we agreed on the economic remedies for particular injustices, right? Those those questions of justice are hard, uh, and um, and of course, people have have really strong feelings about you know even the minutest disagreements about these things. So let's just note that the that the terrain is difficult, but that it's also a really important question for I think for for economics, particularly for a society like the U.S. where we have our particular history. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we we can go further. I have thought a bit about reparations and I don't, but I have not written about them much. Um, But, but we could, we could get into that um, because that is a topic that's important for the church right now, I think. Yeah. And, And I think the heart of the issue is like, okay, so we see that, you know, we, we, we admit about, we can um, acknowledge the the errors of the past of the country, especially for you guys in the U.S. Um, and so the question now is how 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 do Black people progress in, in society? And so the argument is okay. Well, because the government messed up in the past, then they should be responsible for. Um, um, you know, helping give black people a future. Uh, now, if, if if we go back to like um, to the the work of Booker T. Washington and 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 W. E. B. Du Bois, um, they they have two two different ideas about how black people should progress, and 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 these are economic concepts which which we still argue about today so booker t washington is is you know he he had the tuskegee school um and 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 he was arguing like okay the way black people are going to um progress and do well in this racist economy is that they have to get skills so he started the tuskegee school and 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 taught trades and 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 if you and his idea was it's kind of like what we see in Genesis chapter one verse twenty six and, and verse twenty eight, um, the cultural mandate where God gives us all people, not just Christians, but all people, the command to to flourish and uh, to be fruitful, right? And using his creation to um, to 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 benefit others. And so he's saying, okay, for black people, you you go to school, get a trade. And be helpful. If you're helpful, then you'll be accepted and you'll be able to uh, come up. And then the boy was the boys was saying, well, okay, well, you know, because of all this racism, black people are going to need some help. We, you know, we can't necessarily do it on our our own. And so this is where we are today. Um, same you know, conversation. On Twitter. Yeah, yeah, same conversation. But it's funny because on Twitter, <laughs> you know, Twitter's Twitter, Twitter's my favorite uh, social media platform. And and only because my my wife says the only reason why I like it is because I like controversy, but it's only on, <laughs> only on Twitter can you see these guys going back and forth in real time, right? Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> where you see oh, yeah, these these pastors going back. Right now, personally, I like to play rough. I I, I like a good yeah. argument. I, I like a good argument because it helps me to learn. Um, but this is this is kind of like the heart of of the Christians debating on social justice so i guess my question to you is is there a better way which which way is a better way is 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 it is it pulling yourself up by your bootstraps free market or or is it um you know government programs welfare programs help a brother out type stuff you know i think that distinction is a is a fine one and it does point to different emphases in the conversation we have um about poverty and about race Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. And I'd actually like to make a slightly different set of distinctions. Okay, um, good. And then, and then I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. That's my plan, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> okay. So first of all, I think we need to distinguish basic questions of injustice. Uh, because these, because the, the argument, I think, particularly coming from progressive circles, is that the lift yourself up by your bootstraps 
um, analogy is um, is a way of ignoring the fact that injustice happened and is happening. So if you look at in the United States, if you, there's, there's, there's good evidence that um, that people applying for jobs, we have good audit studies of, from applications and whatnot, that there is discrimination against um, against black Americans based on um, you know the most trivial characteristics like like names, and that this results in fewer interviews and, and fewer job offers in particularly in certain industries. And um, moreover, that we see well, there's some evidence that um, that even in places where there is that kind of discrimination, it isn't um, borne out in productivity differences. So where we can observe productivity. Of, of workers in industries, um, the, there isn't a real difference. And so this kind of discrimination does look like kind of just a pure, the market is just um, on average in a, in a noticeable way, you know, being terrible to black Americans uh, in the labor market. Okay, it's not nearly as bad maybe as it was um, in some past times, but it, but it exists. All right, so that's just like one example. All right, so if this is going on, and then someone turns around and says, you know what, um, you know, black people and minorities in the U.S. need to just, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And I'll give you some great advice about how to do that. Here's a 10 step, you know, process for, you know, going and getting an education, you know, starting a small business and then and then making it. There's a sense in which that feels like a I don't want to fix the problem of the injustice um, kind of response. So the first step is acknowledge the injustice, and yes, we have to fix it. If if we're ignoring the places in which there's there's real injustice uh, in our current economy, there's there's just no there's no good free market solution because then the market just becomes an excuse for for not fixing, not cleaning house, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could make a similar argument about crimes in the past, right? If someone comes and and you know if they came at gunpoint and drove my family out of our house. And you know, um, and then you know, threatened us with death, drove us out of town, and then and then took our house. Um, I would, I would be, I would be angry. I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say, and I would demand restitution. Now, the thing is, of course, this happened literally to a whole bunch of folks in the U.S. It was a couple generations back, and often, you know, the the people who inhabited the house, the you know, the, the household head would be killed in the process, and they'd be lynched. Now, that's that's a real crime, and and it's reasonable to say that there should be some restitution for that crime. So I think there's a reasonable question of justice there as well. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't change the fact that at the same time, the best advice I would give a student sitting in front of me, who was um, who was a minority, who was worried about. Um, the prospect of going into a labor market where there might be this uh, kind of discrimination, or maybe their family was the uh, was subject to this kind of injustice in the past. I, I wouldn't tell them that the best path forward was only to worry about those injustices. I would give them the very good advice that, hey, you know what? You've got some real opportunity and some real talent. let's 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 study hard. Let's find you a career that fits your skills where you can really do some good. Um, where you can thrive as a person um, and take care of your family, I'd give them the same all of that advice about how to be um, a productive uh, citizen and 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 really do some great things with their life. But 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 honestly, I I don't think these are in conflict. So they're only in conflict if we insist we have to choose between addressing the injustice 
and offering like real structures of social mobility and opportunity to folks. But of course we want both, right? Mm -hmm. And then the only question then becomes, right, what's the role of the government in all this? So f forgive me, I'm, I'm going through like a four point, you know, no um, response mm -hmm. here and, yeah, and, uh, and, and maybe you guys want to jump in, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, the hard question then is where does the where's the government in all of this? Um, I don't. I haven't worked out for my own, my to my own satisfaction, um, what, um, what the U.S. federal government, what the what the just response would be economically speaking to our history of racism. I think the argument for reparations is stronger than I gave credit for before I paid attention to our history. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how to implement a, a reparations program well, although there's folks who've put a lot more thought into it than I have. And, and just out of basic respect for them, I got to say that it's probably the case that they've resolved a lot of the questions that I would ask, and I just haven't done my homework. Um, but I think it'd probably be reasonable to say that the U.S. federal government and state governments were involved in injustice, and you might find a way to, to make a good case that they should also be involved in some restitution. That's a yeah. basic question of justice, which doesn't, which I think, I think should be resolved separate with great care from the question of, you know, how do we create social mobility? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and I wouldn't rule out the, the possibility of reparations being the appropriate response for private entities. If you know, and, you know, I was talking to a libertarian friend, actually one, uh, one of the podcast episodes with Art Carden. He's, he's a very conservative, libertarian kind of guy. I'm, well, at least libertarian. I'm not sure if he'd use the term conservative. But, but, he, uh, but he's very suspicious of government action. But he said, you know, I'd be open to an argument that my own family history was such that I owed reparations to the descendants of people that we had done wrong to. Um, he said, I think that's a fine argument. And if you brought me the right evidence, he said, it would be his obligation to pay attention to it. And I respect that as well. I think that, that makes sense. And if someone came to our church and said, hey, we have a history we, we've done that. We've done the homework and found out that your church, Third Reformed Church, you know, was involved in some grave injustice one or two generations back. Uh, and here are the people that you've harmed. I would want our church to respond appropriately and try to make some restitution. Like all of those, I think, are appropriate inclinations. Um, mm. Yeah, no, no, that, no, that's good. Right. But all the details are hard. But, and, but I'm not sure why we would have to choose. Yeah, right. you know, I I think um, the reason why we would, in a sense, have to choose is in the sense that the example you gave about dealing with the student, mm -hmm. right? Because I, you know, I I like to look at things not from a top down, but from a bottom up. So part of my heart is where dealing with students, like yeah, we're talking here on the show and. Yeah, we're we're seeing what's going on on Twitter. But what am I going to say to my student? <laughs> what am I, I going to say to 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 this black kid that's coming to me, and he's like, "Hey, you know, Darnell, I can't, you know, because of the system, I'll never make it." And mm. and and to be honest, to be transparent, I was there. Yeah, I was that kid who who basically had no hope because of a narrative that that was shown to me, and so. Practically speaking, and, and just like with theology, theology is practical, economics is practical. What am I going to say to that kid? Am I going to say, well, okay, you know, because of the powers that be, you'll never make it unless we vote in fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. So practically speaking, I'm saying, okay, look, 
let's let's look at what tools you do have to work with and what options you do have and what and what skills God has blessed you with. So so for example, um okay, in Thomas Sowell's book The Quest for Cosmic Justice, right? We're talking about justice. Um and um in it Thomas Sowell argues uh, the traditional justice is applying the same standards and the same rules to everybody. And mm-hmm. then cosmic mean cosmic justice means um equalizing the pro, um the prospects of everybody. Right. And and that and I think that that's kind of pointing back to answering your question. Okay, well, what what is how is the government approaching this? Where is the government in all this? And I think um ideologically, this is where the government is at. They're like, okay, you know what? Um politically, I need to get back in the office. Um, social justice is the wave, this is what everybody's on right now. Um, and the ideology is that we're trying to um equalizing the prospects of everybody. And I think that is the wrong standard. We're setting for people that, especially that black kid that's coming to me saying, okay, I have no hope um, because based on the numbers, um, we're not the same as um, I'll never be um, this a lawyer or whatever the case may be. But I think that's the wrong standard in the sense that um, because of sin and because the ground is cursed, as we see after the fall, there, there is no, you'll never see um, equal outcome in this world. Or not even even in the world to come. That, that that's just not a that's just not um, a biblical concept, and it's not um, in. I think the correct term is anthropological concept. Like the the what framework or as an economist would say, um, what are we comparing this disparity to or this um, um, equalizing idea? Where are we getting it from? So for for the kid, I'm saying, okay, look, you're special. You're special. God made you special and he's given you gifts and he's given you tools. What tools do we have that we can help you be a good steward of and cultivate back to Genesis one in, in the cultural mandate? What, what, what can we do to help you get to where you need to be instead of looking over your shoulder and looking at what other people are doing or even what the common narrative of the culture is, but how can we help you? How can we empower you to be the best version of yourself? So yeah. that, that, that would be my response there. Um, and so the idea is like when we're looking at trying to help black people, and I think this is a good example um, to that, a conversation that Joel and I usually have a lot. <laughs> and I think um, having conversations with people, like when it comes to helping black people, when we look at the job market and finding jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And we look at um, affirmative action, right? Governments, okay, yo, you know, let's, let's do affirmative action. Let's help a brother out. And, but then you also have nepotism, right? Hiring mm-hmm. your own people. Yeah. And so for the person who's an entrepreneur, they take a loan out, right? They take the risk, right? It's not easy running a business. It's not easy franchising. You took the risk. All right, cool. So you should be able to hire who you want to hire. Um, and so I guess my question to you is, um, do we have a right to tell someone how to run their business, i.e. Um, who to hire or how much to pay them? All right. So it turns out that this is the podcast conversation in which y'all just throw me the, <laughs> the biggest, most controversial, <laughs> hardest question that I have that I have not fully thought through um, and, and, then, and then ask me to fix it. Hi, I'm Darnell Samuels. You may remember me from such podcasts as Thanks Coach and The Success Report. 
When Joel and I are not studying for the next episode, we're paying bills for hosting and production. If you want to help us out, you can make a donation of any amount by clicking the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. If you broke, don't worry about it. You can subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast catcher. If you did this already, then you can share the show with a friend. Joel, Jeezy, and I appreciate your support. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. But you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I have tenure, so if I can't, if yeah. I can't talk about this stuff, who can, right? So, but yeah. let's let me just say, all right. So, with questions like affirmative action, this is a this is a this is a big question in the U.S. There's a Supreme Court case coming up um, about affirmative action in in higher education. I think this is a conversation we're going to have over the next year or so, um, for sure. And it's an important one. I'll tell you, uh, I haven't, um, I haven't c- thought carefully about. The, the questions of justice involved here. So I don't, so I'm going to give you my gut response, but I might change my mind tomorrow. How's that? Cool. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. gut, the gut is that with something like affirmative action, um, the, my first question would be, would be to ask how well it works. Right. So, so the, 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 the underlying kind of vision of justice that I'm going to lean back on which, which I think is similar, but not exactly the same as what, what Thomas Sowell's are articulating in, in what you just um, talked through. Um, my sense is that we want to create an economy in which, um, in which people have uh, a real substantive opportunity to do the, thing they're, the things they're called to do by God, mm-hmm. right? which, which is not the same thing as um, equality of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of equality of opportunity, um, but like, yeah, it's a focus on on whether or not people are being left out of really the important parts of of, of commercial life and public life and, and family life. If we have some structure in place that's making you know these basic kinds of participation in 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 public life hard or difficult or impossible, then we got to we got to take a look at those structures and those laws um, and those elements of our of our life together and and give them a real scrutiny and energy to, to reform. That's kind of the the big picture of justice. And so then when you when you think about something like um, racial discrimination in the labor market, um, affirmative action is a is a is a particular blunt tool to try to fix a real problem, and um, and it's a it's a really controversial one, and the, my question would be how well is it working? And I don't know the answer. Um, to the extent that it works really well, I'd be open to saying we should have rules in place. That, that punish employers who are blatantly discriminating um, or we have good evidence they're discriminating, uh, particularly if, it, if, that has, if that has real good effects to bring about the kind of economy that I, that, that I just described as, as the one that I would think would, would be just. But there are real hard questions, right? I, I don't rule out the, the possibility that in doing so, we would also be doing a kind of injustice, right? If you have somebody who is, um, who's started their own small business and they've been working really hard to um, to build it up to the point where they could um, they could hire um, a good friend of theirs who they know to be really good at the job they want them to do, and they want to get them out of a bad job and get them into you know into their small business with them. There's a sense in which that kind of hiring, like I built this business to try to be able to go into business with my friend. There's nothing wrong with that inclination or that goal, 
And yet that's also a kind of nepotism, right? You're hiring someone for a job because they're your friend, right? And because you know them, and that's automatically going to rule out other qualified candidates that, that are not in your social circle, you know, that maybe don't, you know, live next door or go to church or are part of your family. So on the one hand, I accept that that, that entrepreneur is doing something that's probably fundamentally good. And yet, uh, I also accept that the kind of practice where people are hiring folks because they look like them and talk like them and have the same connections that they have, that, that in aggregate, that's a terrible way to run an economy, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so I can't resolve that tension. You can go libertarian and you can say everybody's allowed to do whatever you want. And if you have competitive markets, it'll solve the problem of the good old boys club. And I honestly just don't think that it will solve the problem. And so because I, because I don't think the markets are competitive enough and there's certain, a whole bunch of different kinds of discrimination that aren't, that aren't solved that way. And so I'm left with the, with the fundamental tension that we have two different injustices that we're trying to trade off. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix it. Yeah, I think you know, to somewhat circle back, but I think it ties well to, to what both things we were talking, we've been talking about. First, my thought is like, you know, the nepotism comment would be for the new entrepreneur, the trust may be of the highest priority to them. And so a nepotistic hire actually aligns with their highest priorities. Um, yeah. But as you become, you know, trust is not the most important thing you're hiring based on. Um, then, then the nepotistic hire aligns with sort of what you said. This is not a good way to run an economy. Um, yeah, and and I think there is a level that the market will weed out that person because they'll be a bad manager of resources and most likely will go bankrupt. Um, you now, know, maybe, but but sometimes, like in some informational situations, nepotism might be efficient. Like maybe you only want to hire people you know because the job that you're hiring for is. Um, is highly variable, like the skills are hard to observe. And so the only way you can get the person who you know is going to be able to do the job you need to do is if it's someone you have long experience with, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, and I think trust sort of aligns right? with that, right? Yeah, and so nepotism could be efficient. Like the market might not mm-hmm. drive that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, but actually, but you know what I was going to say? But, but I'm saying the market the, shouldn't have driven it out based on what you just said. Oh, well, you know, but I mean, that also could be consistent with an economy in which there's, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of racism, right? That could, that could exacerbate um, yeah, but, but an underlying think, racial disparity in a really significant way if it's aggregated up. But, 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 oh, sorry, sorry, Joel, go ahead. Darnell, go ahead. Joel, I was going to say that um, I, I don't, I don't, when I think of nepotism, I don't, I don't think it's efficient, actually. I think it's inefficient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, technically, you know, when you're putting somebody on, you're doing them a favor um, as a hit to you, right? Okay. So, like, you know, you start your business and you have your your knucklehead nephew who's at home doing nothing, <laughs> and so your sister says, "Hey, you know, um, I need you to put, um, you know, put your nephew on." Okay, you know, and you hire him as a hit. I, I don't, I never see nepotism as something, um, something good. Technically, I, I, I think it's actually something that something, a lot of times it's not helpful. Because if the person was actually qualified, you would have gave them the job. Mm-hmm. But so, I usually see it as a hookup there. So, so I, think, I think we're all in agreement yeah. to some extent. And, and I think it's that largely there's a very limited context where, and what I, was, I think what I was saying is, is the right way to define it. When trust is a fundamental factor, 
the nepotistic hire, assuming they're also hiring a qualified person, right? So I think Darnell, you're right that most nepotistic hires are not based also on qualifications. They're based on help a brother, helping out. your sister out. <laughs> help your, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too kind hearted and, you know, I know this guy's troubled and I want to help him and I know it. Right. So I, I think, or, or, or as a black person, you want to give back to your community and hire your own. And hmm. you're not hiring the qualified person. Right. But that's that, but you, you could teach the person, I guess you could teach them on the job training, I guess. Well, and, and so, but then you could argue the, the, the teachability is the right skill set that you're hiring, right? And and so, um, but I, I wanna I want to sort of so I think we're relatively in agreement on on that. What's what I did want to circle back on to to talk about a bit though was the idea of the affirmative action because it aligns a little bit with with sort of this thought that I was having, which is, you know, when when. Steve, you were making that distinction between sort of two issues. I, I totally agree. I've sort of used the terminology. If we're talking about a particular injustice that needs restitution, you know, let's use the term reparations, totally makes sense. But when you have a collective reparation for a collective injustice, the difficulty is, well, aren't you going to make some of the individuals worse off who, didn't, who, who couldn't even afford to be worse off? Um, and, yeah. and so this is where, um, to, to circle, I, so I liked that distinction. I, I, I think, um, I think my issue is that I think there's an intentional convolating or conflation of those issues for people who have an ideological hold on a particular policy. And, and, you know, the one example that I think sort of applies, and, and I don't know if you've heard this before, Steve, there's actually a follow-up to the, the name study that you referred to with hiring. Mm-hmm. And, and so the follow-up was that they took um, particular last names and used last names that were associated with particular races. And they found actually no distinction in the hiring. But what they did find was what then you had ethnic first names. So whether it was a Jewish ethnic first name or any other particular culture, that those names received some level of discrimination. And and what was the reason? Was it because they they took it as a proxy of the wrong thing? Now, that's a different issue than the initial study seems to con- convey, but a follow-up study says, "Wait, the issue is a little deeper than we had originally thought." Or the follow-up studies, I should say. Um yeah. And and so my sort of point here is that well, I can latch on to one study when I have a particular bent towards a policy solution, you know, let's say just for oversimplification, sort of the, the Democrat versus Republican approach of, oh, we need the government to intervene. Okay, let me go look for a whole bunch of reasonings for why the government should intervene to solve this problem. And, and I would say Republicans are just as guilty for what I'm about to say. I find, and I probably, I, I do align with your, your libertarian, you know, uh, person you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. where... I think too often we fail to say, okay, let's say we're calling something a market failure, you know, and that's a big term just for, even though maybe people don't use it, I'm just, you know, you could argue, oh, the wrong people were hired because of racism. Okay. That's a market failure, right? Like, um, we fail to evaluate first off, what are the causes of this market failure? 
Is it because the government already intervened? Is it because the government regulation that's there is causing perverse incentives? Instead, we go, oh, here's a symptom in the current economy. How do we solve the symptoms? Without really digging into the cause and effect of you know, the outcome. And that's where I think the particular study you brought up sort of demonstrates that. Well, when we look at the one study, it's aligning with our ideological bent, potentially. Not you necessarily, but people that jump on it. Um, but if we were, let's do the really hard work of digging in and understanding, we might realize, okay, this is a much deeper or different issue than we had originally perceived. You know, I think that's, that's totally fair. And I, you know, the, the best advice I can have to, for folks is, I mean, we're, we're actually, we're all subject to this particular kind of danger is that we see the results of particular studies or particular arguments that, um, that support something that we already hold on to, of course, mm -hmm. and, and we subject that argument or that, that study to less scrutiny. And, you know, the best, the best kind of habit that we can, we can build up is to, you know, for arguments, you know, consider, consider, you know, go out of your way to consider the best possible argument that you disagree with. And then for studies to try to look at whole literatures, right? Look at the follow-up studies and look at other studies that are, that are doing similar kinds of experiments in, in other ways and see if across lots of different kinds of evidence, you come up with similar results. And, uh, and that's really important. That's, that's kind of an intellectual habit that that we need to cultivate, um, along with just charity for people we disagree with, it helps us to listen better. Um, and I, that's something that I just, um, that I just have to work on constantly as an academic. It's, it's like a, a high priority to, to constantly remind myself to be critical of the things I agree with, if that makes sense. Right. And to read people that are coming from different perspectives. Um, that aside, I think the discrimination studies, um, that follow-up is very interesting. There, there is a, there's a pretty big literature of people doing these kinds of experiments in different ways. And there is, I, I think there's pretty strong evidence that there is uh, race-based discrimination in hiring. I think there's some disagreement about, about how much that kind of discrimination that we can observe in an audit study um, actually results in different equilibrium wages or different real mm -hmm. opportunities. That's, I think, where the literature needs to go is to figure out like what the real outcome is for, um, for, for people in the labor market, because having a different callback rate is it's not easy to infer from that mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. differences in real, in real wage outcomes, for instance, or something like that. But, but yeah. there's, there's a lot of work being done that it's a really important area that, that folk that smart people are working on um, yeah. and they'll continue to do it. Um, it's funny. Uh, I was thinking about, um, well, what you said was a good point. Like, you know, like race is going to be a factor in the hiring. And I think it it's, it's always doesn't matter how you're going to slice it. Um, I, I hold to the view that um, racism is um, amoral. Um, and everybody's a racist. And so it depends if you're a good one or a bad one. <laughs> right. So the idea is that when I say amoral, like um, it, it's not good or bad. It depends on the context you put it in. So for example, mm -hmm. so for example, affirmative action is, is a racist policy, but it's a good one, right? And, yeah. right? In the sense right. that it's a, it's, a, it's a legal structure that has a, a preference for particular racial groups or right. something like that. Right, right, yeah. right. So, so and, and that's what I'm saying, like, yeah, like, well, 
you know, when I go back to my, my previous point about the economic concept of race, now it's an actual variable you have to calculate. But, but again, and I think me just nuancing the point that um, it's amoral. So it could be immoral or moral. It depends on the context that it's put in. Now, some people put policy-wise, oh, they would say that, okay, affirmative action is um, not helpful, but whatever the case may be. But I, I just wanted to uh, nuance that point. But, but m- moving yeah. on, I, I wanted to um, talk about welfare because that's another point of contention um, yeah. between um, Christians and how should we help those in need, right? Give a man a fish. Um, or, or teach a man to fish. In the yeah. book, uh, When Helping Hurts, um, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself by Brian, Brian Fickert and um, Steve Colbert. Um, and the authors argue that sometimes helping can be harmful, right? And, and they give this really cool analogy of a doctor misdiagnosing their patient. Yes, mm-hmm. they're, the doctor's trying to help their patient, but if the doctor misdiagnoses um, the the uh, patient's ailment, then they can actually and and they and they misdiagnose um, or um, give the wrong prescription to well if they misdiagnose and they give the wrong prescription to the um, patient they can actually hurt the patient or kill the patient. So when we are trying to help and we need especially as Christians because you know we're called to love our neighbor when helping. We have to use our brains and not just our hearts and really think through like what, what, what does it actually look like and what are the implications of helping this person and what is their problem? And so as Christians, how do we help those in need without hurting them? And so my question to you is looking at welfare. Some people say, you know, we, we, our last episode, we talked about um, universal basic income and the welfare trap. And, and yep. this is one of those things where, you know, we see that um, um, Thomas Sowell, and, and I can't remember what book it was, but he did some research on um, the, how black people were progressing at one point um, prior to, um, I can't remember the president's name, um, Lyndon Johnson yeah. um, um, and his policy, The Better Way Forward. Can't remember what it was oh, called, it was the the um the great for uh, great it's a great, great society thing yeah or something like or that but yeah but 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 essentially but essentially yeah but essentially after those policies he was arguing um it actually um put put black people into um a welfare trap um and and it it started to incentivize bad behavior and so prior to that policy uh, black people were doing well so I, I just wanted to get your opinion on um like welfare and, and Christians helping and yeah. so forth. Yeah, um, so this is an issue that I've, that I've been thinking about a fair bit lately because I, I just finishing up a, a book in which I'm debating the redistribution of wealth with another scholar. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. The other scholar is uh, Jim Otteson. He takes a kind of conservative, I, I don't think, I don't know if he would call himself a libertarian, but he's a kind of libertarian. And I'm, I'm on the more progressive side on this one. But um, but the um, but I've but I've had to come to terms, I think, really, in in kind of a detailed way with these sorts of arguments, and I think they're they're important ones. Um, so I I think I would parse it this way. First off, um, the the idea of a poverty trap is is an important one, and there's multiple kinds of poverty traps. 
that that we should be thinking about. Um, one kind is the kind that um, that I think you were just talking about Thomas Sowell, right? Mm-hmm. Is, um, that that he yeah. references. In particular, um, we have a, a history of um, of social safety net and welfare programs that create weird disincentives um, that where the where the incentive for the participants is that is to just to preserve their participation in the program rather than to participate in the labor market uh, and where they're better off not working and keeping the benefits rather than than investing in you know in labor market um, and, and and economists have spent a lot of time talking about these and there's you know there's there's weird cases in which you'll have two or three programs particularly when you have kind of a hodgepodge welfare state like we have in the US where the <laughs> programs are all designed decades apart like and then you know they're all tweaked Stacked. you know by committees so then you get you get what people sometimes call the welfare cliff or the benefits mm-hmm. cliff where where if you earn just a few dollars more you like you lose your Medicare benefit or Medicaid benefits, right? Which are a huge value, particularly if you have kids, right? And and you know, um, medical insurance is just very expensive, and your job might not, particularly on the low end of the of the income distribution in the U.S., low wage jobs often don't come with healthcare benefits, and so that loss of of healthcare benefits is huge. And so, what's what's a good parent going to do? Are they going to lose you know their health insurance and work three hours more a week? You know, of course not. Um, so that's that's just I think I'd, I'd say that's a real that's a real problem. Like that's a poorly designed program, right? Off the off the top, you don't want to create a, a a terrible choice, tragic choice for people who are already in a bad situation, and say you have to choose between um, this program and um, and working and um, you know building a career. So. That's, I think that's a real problem. And we have in, in the U.S., our history of designing these programs is not awesome. So um, I think today we're in a better place than we were 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, we've reformed a lot of these, although we haven't done a great job still with, with Medicaid, um, although it's, it's a little bit better now. Um, we, haven't, we haven't totally come to terms with, um, with all of those problems, but it's better in that there are fewer of those weird bad incentives and we can we can measure and we can we can keep track of these and it's it's really complicated work but you can go and you can figure out what the incentives are for working what the marginal uh take-home pay would be after you lose benefits and whatnot at various margins and you can figure out where the where you're creating these perverse incentives so that's that's an important work to do on the flip side there's also another kind of poverty trap that folks on the on the progressive side worry about and that is that you could have a situation where folks are not, they, they honestly don't have the resources um, to invest in kids so that those kids have the opportunities as they grow up to be productive. And, and sometimes things that you, you wouldn't think would make a huge impact kind of do. We have, for example, we have some good studies that, that the rollout, again, let's, going back to Medicaid, which is... Um, I, I should specify for those who don't read about government programs all the time, <laughs> Medicaid is, is medical insurance for people who, have, who are in poverty in the U.S., more or less. Um, so the rollout of, of Medicaid and food stamps, we have studies on both of these, turns out the rollout has really positive long-term impacts for the kids 
in the families that first got those benefits. Like the difference between not having any insurance and having insurance, which, which, was, which was a real thing when we were rolling out Medicaid, that the kids that grew up with basic nutrition and the, because of the government program did, did way better over their lifetime than the kids who didn't have those benefits. And the same thing with Medicare. We have really good long-term now studies of what happened to the families that got those initial healthcare benefits versus those who didn't have healthcare benefits yet, even at a young age. And the result is some, some of these studies are showing that the government is actually saving money because the long-term program participation for these kids um, and the long-term productivity and therefore the tax revenue that they produce is such that they were better giving them food and health care as a kid because their long-term trajectory is so much better and the government like actually gets a little bit of a return or at minimum it offsets the cost of those programs to a significant degree when you take a whole lifetime in, in view. So mm-hmm. that's a different kind of poverty trap. That, right? that, that's the poverty trap that says we have folks in bad enough situations in poverty in the U.S., in, in our very recent past at least, that just the provision of healthcare has a big positive economic impact on their ability to participate in commercial life going forward. Um, we have to pay attention to both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those kinds of tragic situations when we're designing policy. Well, and, you know, if I was to sort of push back sometimes i think of it also i think there's an aspect where let's use the the let's call it free market sort of no government intervention scenario um that is something we should be concerned about but then the question is why do we narrow it to this debate why aren't we having a larger conversation to go okay how do we solve this problem Right, like it, mm-hmm. it sort of defaults it. Oh well, we were already we already had a welfare cliff that we were talking about on the policy conversation. Well, there's this other welfare cliff we're worried about, so therefore the policy is good, as opposed to, okay, here's a different problem that we should worry about and try to solve. And and the reason I bring that up is that the short term solution, the economic calculation is as as you've described, but then what is the long term moral hazard that that or sorry, what is the long-term consequences that the moral hazard or the potential moral hazards for decision is, right? So moral hazard being you're, you're going to make the less or you're basically not punished for your bad decision or, mm. or you don't reap the benefit of the better decision because of the incentives that this creates. So, you know, I think about it from the perspective of, okay, what is the, is it, would it be more efficient in the long run if we devise the, a solution that was short-term in nature, maybe through government, but expired in five years, because we can go back to the Milton Friedman quote, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program, actually make these things temporary. Um, but the reason I say that is like, look at healthcare as a whole. Like we both, in Canada and the US, we both have authoritarian healthcare. Yours is fascist, ours is socialist. They both suck. They both have outcomes in different ways that are very bad. But instead we go, oh, the problem is we need more government in yours and we also need more government. But, but realistically, like both the government interventions are having consequences that we don't identify as the cons- cause being because of so much government intervention. You know, um, so I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not a libertarian. I don't share sort of the the, the basic distrust of any time the government is doing something that they're probably good, messing good. up. You know, it's just. Um, but I, I that said, I've I've been challenged over the years as I've as I've read libertarians, and you know, Milton Friedman is a kind of hero of mine intellectually. Um, that that I need to take I need to take this kind of um, this kind of thing seriously. Um, I would I would I'd push back in this way. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the case. Well, first of all, the fact that you call Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan fascist uh, is no, delicious. No, that's not what I'm talking um, about. I'm well, talking. No, about- sorry. I'm not saying- <laughs> I was I was kind of agreeing with you. Um, oh, okay. So, oh, so you agree there's fascist? I I was more so the central. Uh, no, sort of I mean only right. o- only just that I, I, the the private health insurance system in the United States. I've just I've spent a lot of my life arguing um, and worrying about it, and um, just as a, as a family, we have a lot of health issues. And there is, there's never, and we, we have, some of these are covered by state programs and, and a lot of them are, we have good, we have good insurance here at Hope College. A lot of it's private. Um, I, I think both the state and the private insurance programs are pretty horrific. And mm-hmm. the hospitals we deal with are full of really good people. And also economically, it's a dumpster fire. So, um, so I, on, but, but on the so one hand. Just to clarify, I, I agree that like the system is kind of messed up in multiple ways. Yeah. So um, when I when I think of the the term fascist, I'm referring to the graph with regards to the 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 uh, healthcare system with regards to the percentage of administrators in the system. So, no. <laughs> right, like that to yep. me is resemblant of the fascist nature because the government is so highly regulating the industry that for the hospital to operate. There's so many bureaucracies involved, I, you know. So I would say that both the private and, and public healthcare are under an authoritarian structure. That that would yeah, sort of be my pushback. Not so much that, that I agree the private healthcare or private insurance in the U.S. sucks. And my my reasoning for that would be because I mean I know like because I'm I'm familiar. Are you familiar with uh, Samaritan Ministries? Um, I am not. No. Uh, so they they run a program of sort of a cost sharing insurance program so you have a fee and when you have bills you upload your bill and there is a community that would contribute to your bills but this program is also now negotiating privately with hospitals and those hospitals are like okay you're not an insurance program we don't have to worry about this ridiculous like billing system codings you know percentage discounts based on all these like so and and where does all that come from it comes from the regulation and the bureaucracy involved with this industry. And so um, I, there's also you know, very free market scenarios with regards to doctors who are saying, okay, you will have a private um, sort of club scenario. You pay $50 a month and now that's your, you come and have appointments out as needed. You know, I'm sure there's probably a limitation on the number of appointments that I can give you under that program. But, but this is where, to me, the, the public sorry, the private industry is sort of too easily considered to be the free market solution when mm-hmm. they're so embedded with the government that, that they're really semi-cronyist, not really free market. And so that's why I say both, I look at both US and Canada as highly authoritarian healthcare systems because the government is so deeply involved in healthcare. And, and I would argue this is a catalyst to why we were the last two years, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, So I won't go down that road too much, but I just wanted to make that point of clarification because I I, I appreciate the pushback that you're you're giving, but I would say like, I'm sort of pointing in a slightly different direction. 
Okay, that's that's fair. And um, I mean, actually throwing around throwing around the word fascist is just is just a little bit of a problem. Uh, and and so I so like this definitions are actually really helpful. So that's really good mm-hmm. um, because because every listener will hear something else uh, with right, something fair. different yeah. right when they when they hear especially the with uh, Antifa using the word and conflating yeah, it even further. You know, it, and and it's kind of like the word capitalism and kind of like the word socialism. And mm-hmm. you know, if mm-hmm. someone complains about socialism, I I honestly never know whether or not I am the person they're complaining about because <laughs> like, I think we should have, you know, government and and there should be some some social programs and whatnot. But um so defining terms is very helpful. Um I I, I think I would I would I'd agree with you. I think we would probably end up disagreeing about what direction we ought to move, maybe on some margins. But I would also agree that that there are lots of places in the U.S. Uh, healthcare system right now where, um, where we're—I don't know about the Canadian system as well. Um, I confess, where probably more, more market competition is the answer, and that there's a lack of market com- competition in some cases because of government action. Right, that we mm-hmm. have created a system in which, you know, through regulation. There yeah, like is your certificate of need type stuff, right? Right. Like what we what we end up having is um, is an abuse of power, and the abuse of power isn't actually by a government agency. It's by a single firm that dominates a particular market and owns all the hospitals, and also owns the insurance company. By the way, and mm-hmm. the result is that there there is no there's no position in that market for folks to like observe prices and go to a different doctor because Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. one is charging too much for my knee replacement surgery. So that in that sense, the market is not functioning. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the same time, um, it, it is, I'm open to the idea that in some situations in the U S healthcare system, we could move either toward more government or toward less government. And either way, we might be in a better situation, Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of outcomes for folks. Uh, well, and I but, think what you're sort of saying too is a fundamentally different way that government is involved, even. Yes, and and I think that's the key is is in, in particularly in healthcare, which is just a really weird market in a lot of ways, um, and the fact that we have health and healthcare insurance that changes the market in really weird ways. And I I don't think going without insurance or going without some cost sharing mechanism, private or public, is an option for folks because of the the catastrophic kinds of costs you can get really easily. The kind of risk we're dealing with is really substantial. Mm-hmm. So, so we're dealing with kind of second best situations, no matter how we do it. And the solution probably isn't to say, you know, we need to, you know, ditch all of it and and go with go to, to one extreme or the other. Although I'm always open to those kinds of arguments. But probably the way to go forward is to examine the very particular ways in which government policies create perverse outcomes. Sometimes the very particular markets in which we have lack of competition and lack of information to consumers and weird incentives for doctors and weird incentives for hospitals um and and like actually just do the work of of trying to fix the particular problems mm-hmm. um i'm just it's just really complicated and i and i'm not i'm not drawn to we need to ditch the system kind of arguments <laughs> as much as I am like we need to fix particular problems in the system kind of arguments and that probably is my betrays you know the kind of work on the margin mentality that I've inherited as an economist um but healthcare is a mess oh yeah no and and I mean we we uh we definitely have I I, I would say we have an ideological tie to this like 
equal outcome with healthcare, right? Oh, oh yeah. While at the same time, we don't actually have that. The wealthy still have access. It's only the uber wealthy that have access in Canada, right? So think about it from a sports team. Sports teams have all their own doctors, all their own machines, all their own, like they all get the, the MRI tomorrow. We have to wait three months or, or whatever, yeah. right? And so, you know, there's this, you know, and I would say it becomes a, a political debate issue, right? The liberals make it out sound like uh, the conservatives want you to lose your free health care. And the and the conserv and well while the conservatives might be promoting an idea of like hey we need to add some private options to relieve the backlog of our system which on its mm -hmm. surface sounds great and and I would say oh of course the conservative is gonna you know wait till they get the donations from one guy and his all of his family members and somehow his family got the only contract with no other you know right so so that sort of problem is is gonna potentially occur as well. And and so they're both. There's going to be criticisms to go around on, on both, you know, uh, both ideas or, or promote uh, proposed solutions. But it, I would say, going back to somewhat of what we discussed before, that the political realm sort of perverts the conversation um, on some of these solutions. You you know you might you you might be right. I am I'm sympathetic to the argument that that even without government invention intervention in the healthcare market that you would still have some really weird things going on just with the prevalence of, and, and I think the important role for private health insurance, that just private health insurance itself, which I think is important, that it, it on its own, it creates really weird incentives for, for customers and for doctors and creates a whole kind of bureaucracy. And in the US, we only recently got rid of the problem of, um, of, of someone not having insurance or having a pre-existing condition problem where if you get sick and you don't have insurance, then you can't get private insurance, right? And you get these really, which makes perfect business sense, but also humanitarian. It's, a, it's terrible um, that someone could, could mm -hmm. find that the market will not serve them because they are sick. Well, and, um, and I guess so the, you, the question like I would you get that, there... That, well, well, let me just finish the okay, thought. Sorry, so the, the, that's all to say that I think that there are, there are real problems to be solved that I think would require some government rule setting and market creation, basically. Um, and there's a real role for government here that would be kind of inevitable. Um, and I'm totally open to the idea that the government has created real problems mm -hmm. that need to be fixed, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so uh, I sort of had two sort of questions to, to clarify what you're referring to. So um, the one with regards to the pre-existing condition, you know, the, the question that comes to my mind is, um, have we forced private individuals to bear the burden as opposed to having an actual more so government program? So, you know, using Medicaid as an oversimplification of, you know, government insurance as a mm -hmm. means to solve that problem instead of forcing insurance companies to ignore that and therefore all policies have to go up to account for such costs. Yeah. I mean, in the U.S., the, uh, the Obamacare, I should say, Affordable Care Act legislation actually did both. So they, it expanded um, Medicaid um, and to a bigger group of people. And it also changed the rules for private insurance so that um, you could not exclude people because of pre-existing conditions. And then there's actually one more piece that economists often thought was super important. That is, if you're going to not if you're going to allow people or if you're going to require insurance companies to accept people because um, regardless of their health history, 
Well, then you also have to require people to buy insurance so that you don't have folks like hopping in and out of the insurance policy based on whether they're sick or healthy. Right? Well, you don't want someone to buy expensive insurance just when they get the cancer diagnosis. And as soon as their cancer is done, they dial it back to cheap insurance. That's a recipe for disaster for the insurance company. No, I, and, and, but, uh, right? but, but if you had not passed the private, so my thought was, uh, sort of what I was getting at was, but if you had only done dealt with like, so for people with pre-existing conditions that got denied or had mm-hmm. policies that were unaffordable based on their income, yeah, the alternative solution would say, okay, that's where you go to the charity slash government solution, as opposed right. to passing that cost on. Because unfortunately, the, the, the famous line of, if you like your insurance, you can keep it, turned out to be a complete falsehood. And, and, and that's because of exactly this, the pre-existing condition rule, right? Because the pre-existing condition rule made all of those policies unaffordable. Yeah, all the policies changed. Right? And so, right. Because, and, and so those who, under the old private healthcare system, had an affordable scenario, now had to bear a larger cost. And, and so my point was that, yeah, well, they got rid of the problem, but you also described a secondary issue, which was that those who jump in and out, and well, so I would say, what's the moral hazard? Well, the moral hazard was, to some extent, if because if I think about insurance, technically catastrophic healthcare insurance would likely be the same cost of life insurance because the likelihood of those two things are roughly the same if I get the policy when I'm 20 years old and have no pre-existing condition, or as a parent, when my child is born and, and you know, I sign a, let's say a, the, the dilemma becomes, oh, you're going to commit to a lifetime policy, right? Because I mean, mm-hmm. to some extent, that would be the way that you would mitigate that. Um, and, and, but yeah. the other, the other aspect of that is because now we we've, by forcing everybody, well, the 70 year old is now potentially having millions millions of dollars worth of of um treatment protocols that they maybe would have said you know what i've lived a good life i'd rather pass this wealth on to my family than try crazy expensive options that might extend my life by 3 years <laughs> right and i know i'm i'm painting like you know the worst case scenario i i i understand that but i'm sort of demonstrate that we've we've added this moral hazard that is inherently going to cause people to choose things that they would have naturally said, no, this isn't the right decision. Like, so you're, I think you're, you're getting into, I think a a really important and maybe unavoidable problem with providing some kind of collective goods. Now, I think this might be true, whether we have um, the government involved or not, if even with, um, even with private insurance, it's a, for private insurance to work, it has to pool risk in a community. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, it's going to narrow down options for people in a way where some folks are going to come away worse off and they're not going to have the options they want. And other folks are going to come away a lot better off. And um, like, there's, I think some irresolvable tensions there. Yeah. Well, um, and, and like I would providing just. Providing those collective goods, private market or public, providing those collective goods is very expensive. And we're not going to be able to nail down a scenario that works well for everybody. I agree. And, and I, my, I guess my postulation or, or potential would say, well, but then we've also crowded out the ability for, let's say, research and charity to fill that gap um, because yeah. it, that gap doesn't exist. And, and the reason why I like the charity solution is because, you know, there, there becomes an aspect of, okay, you know what? We're not going to spend a million dollars on a scenario that's going to extend your life for six, uh, six months, potentially. But we would potentially spend the million dollars if it's, it has the li- potential for 20 years life expectancy extension, 
right? Yeah. Like, and and so, you know, getting a, or or even the government, but but the dilemma becomes people see it as like, well, we the government can't say no, but we somehow allow a charity to say no, and so <laughs> uh, you know, there's this dilemma that we get stuck in, you know, the idea that you know it goes back to you know Ludwig von Mises and the economic calculation problem with with sort of the anti-socialist argument that prices communicate information and when we remove that prices conversation people are going to make decisions that they would not have otherwise made and and yeah. you know sometimes the prices are a barrier that we want to as a collective society say hey no we want to help that person and so um i think i think we sort of acknowledge the same goal and and recognize that there's a lot of conversation to have and a lot of ways to solve it and and every solution unfortunately is going to have negative consequences um you know and i i i'd point out just one other thing and that is that there's a there's an underlying um di- disagreement between between different folks on um and kind of like what kind of world could we have if we did something different so this mm. this came out in the in the debate book with jim Addison. Uh, i think it, by the end uh one of the biggest points of disagreement bet- between jim and i is is the assumption of how much private organizations would be able to pick up the slack if the government wasn't involved. So my, I was, I was somewhat pessimistic about people's ability to get health insurance if they're very poor, if the government wasn't there. Uh, Jim is more optimistic. He thinks the market and private charity would do a pretty good job of covering that need. That's a, that's an empirical question. Like we don't disagree about the mechanisms. We only disagree about how many people would in the end be left without healthcare. And I, and I recognize that that the disagreement is a reasonable one, but the disagreement also has a big impact on which pol- which system you think is better. If you think that uh, that that there's going to be a lot of people who aren't getting basic health care if we didn't have um, some kind of government, you know, safety net program, well, then you're more likely to think government is maybe a second best, but probably preferable to the alternative sort of solution. Whereas if you think the private market would do a pretty good job and private charity and, and, and communities would do a pretty good job of picking up um, the pieces there and, and would, in the end, be able to provide basic care to everyone, well, then the government program looks like a pretty bad idea. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where I would say I love the idea of localized solutions as much as possible because it allows the competition and creates the data to be able to evaluate those differences. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think... Uh, yeah. I think you, you've raised some really good points uh, on sort of that diverge of, of thought um, that yeah. does exist. Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks for uh, for your, your time, uh, Steve. Hey, it's, uh, it was very helpful and uh, clarifying uh, this this uh, somewhat confusing issue sometimes. <laughs> hey, you know what? We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm scribbling notes in front of me, and I, and I realize <laughs> as I scan across them that, um, that like, yeah, this is this is a lot of stuff, and and it's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah. each of the issues that we've talked about is like complicated and huge and hard. So yeah, and, know, and necessary, but necessary to talk about. That's true. It, these are all really important questions, and they're ones I care about deeply. And I really appreciate you guys. Um, you know, wanting to have this set of conversations. It's, they're just really important. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, if, if the listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Well, um, you know, my email 
is is public out there. So I'm not afraid to tell <laughs> you. You can you can send me a note, um, McMullen at hope.edu if you wanna if you wanna converse. On social media, I'm mostly on 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 Facebook. I have a Twitter presence and LinkedIn. I got to tell you, Twitter is just the most inhumane fire hose. (laughs) It's a cesspool. It's a terribleness. Um, I mean, I've tried to cultivate connections to some really cool economists. There's so many good people on Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's just not, it's not my favorite medium. So you can follow me on Twitter and don't expect much, right? Keep your expectations really low. Once every couple of months, I will check in and that's about it. Um, Twitter's a great place for smart aleckness. You know, otherwise the, uh, you know, some people like the medium. I just, it's just, not, it doesn't fit my, my attention span and whatnot. <laughs> you know, otherwise the best way to follow my work, I have a website, stevemcmullen.com. And, um, and, you know, I'm available through Hope College and on Google. It's just not at all hard to find me because my name is, is not that common. Um, and I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people. So, awesome. and then of course, Faithful Economy, the podcast, which, um, you know, it's, we, we have a kind of an economic scholarly bent to it i I do i only do interviews and then and then sort of academic events and panels and whatnot is kind of our our niche but um we've been releasing episodes very slowly because my life is crazy but um but certainly check that out if you're interested in these kinds of things yeah definitely i'll put all that in the show notes page and and we really appreciate your time and uh hopefully the the audience uh learned some things and, and had some different perspectives that, that helped them think through these issues. Yeah, I, I know I know I benefited from it. So thanks a lot, Steve. I really appreciate it. No problem. Uh, I'm 100% honest in saying that this was just a ton of fun and I really appreciate your guys' time. Awesome. Thank you. Good. Uh, here at the Sixth Sense Report, we aim to please. <laughs> <laughs> but you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media. 